what I'm trying to do with this book is to document a journey of, of like coming into a consciousness about, about how whiteness works. And ideally in a way that's not just in a way that's not about guilt, but just about like responsibility. Like if I'm going to inherit my parents' house, then I'm going to inherit the way that my parents were able to buy that house. Right. And of course that has everything to do, that has everything to do with race. Welcome to the Roots of the Spirit podcast. I'm your host, Spirit Tafik. My mother, Minnie Jean, became a symbol of the civil rights movement at age 15 when she and eight other black students tried to desegregate Central High School as a violent mob of segregationists raged outside. As the civil rights movement grew, she met my father, a white man, and the two married during a time when interracial marriage was illegal. Being the daughter of civil rights activists who fled to Canada and raised me and my five siblings on a farm in the wilderness, well, it's complicated. Join me in inspiring guests for honest conversations about identity, race, and racism. Welcome to Roots of the Spirit. Welcome, 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 and thank you for joining us for today's episode. As always, I'd be extremely grateful if you head over to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. That's always incredibly helpful and appreciated. I'd love if you could share the podcast with your family and friends. Go ahead and follow us on social media on all platforms at Roots of the Spirit. Visit our website at rootsofthespirit.com and there you can join our mailing list so we can welcome you into the Roots of the Spirit family and keep you abreast of everything that we have going on. Today's episode is extremely interesting. I just thought that it was the most fruitful conversation and I was just fascinated by our guest's journey and his work. Connor Town O'Neill is the author of Down Along with That Devil's Bones, a reckoning with monuments, memory, and the legacy of white supremacy. He works as a producer on the NPR podcast White Lies and teaches at Auburn University. Please join me in welcoming Connor Town O'Neill. Connor Town O'Neill, welcome to the Roots of the Spirit podcast. It's an honor to have you on my show. Oh, thank you, Spirit. It's really good to be with you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited for my listeners to hear your journey that led you to writing your book, Down Along with That Devil's Bones, A Reckoning with Monuments, Memory, and the Legacy of White Supremacy. So to start off, I just love the way you open your book. You were attending the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday in Selma, Alabama. And what started out as you trying to find a parking spot on this grand occasion that attracted over 40,000 people and President Barack Obama, you literally stepped into um, the journey which brought you to writing this book. So I'd love for you to share that experience. I, I really find that interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I was in Selma that day. President Obama was there and, and 40,000, like you said, 40,000 other people were there. And Selma's a small city, right? Like I think it it, it maybe looms large in the, the country's consciousness, but it really is. a. I mean, even maybe even calling it a city is generous. Like it's a big town. Um, and so when the president is there, when the Secret Service is there, when all of the people there for the Jubilee are there, I mean, parking is a nightmare. And so I just... I'm there I, and I'm, do, I'm doing some reporting on the day. And I think, oh, you know, Selma is one of these cities, like a lot of Southern towns that have these sort of sprawling cemeteries. Think Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. Um, and, and so I think, oh, I know, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll stash my car in, in one of the roads that, that cut through the cemetery. Uh, I'll walk down to the bridge. Uh, I'll, I'll commemorate this just massively important anniversary, this moment in, in our nation's history. And, and, and that'll be that, right? It, it did feel sort of like, um, you know, I can, I'll, I'll just, I'll just bear witness here and, and, and then I'll go home. But what I found that day, of course, like disrupted so much of what I thought about the meaning of that day, the meaning of this country's history, the meaning of my place in this country, so much of this. And it happened because when I pull into the cemetery, I start seeing these signs that say Confederate Memorial Circle closed, no trespassing, which is just, you know, catnip for a reporter, right? No trespassing. Okay, why not? You know, uh, so I get out of my car and I approach and I'm, I'm getting glares from some of the folks that are in this Confederate section of the, of, of the cemetery and just very credulously ask, 
what are you doing here? Are you standing guard? Like what's what's going on here? Confederates on a on a civil rights anniversary. I know it sounds naive to say that given everything that's happened in the six years since. And it was naive at the time to have that question in my head. But but that's what I was wondering, you know, what are you doing here? And it come to learn this group who was there that day who calls themselves the Friends of Forest had spent the better part of the last two decades fighting about this statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest that they had put up. And you put up a statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest, a slave trader, this infamous Confederate general, an accused war criminal, the first Grand Wizard of the Klan, operated a convict leasing plantation after the war. I mean, just notorious in so many ways, maybe the most polarizing figure from the the Civil War era. Putting up a statue of him anywhere would be controversial. Putting it up in Selma, given its importance to the movement, uh, the city that gave the world the vote, as some people describe it, like it just compounded that insult, right? But come to learn that they put it up in October of 2000, which in the same week, the city had inaugurated its first black mayor. And it was just, I mean, it, the the motivations there are, are clear, right? Um, and and so, as you might imagine, that 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 statue is protested and defended and derided and becomes the the this sort of millstone that hangs around Mayor Perkins's neck and his his you know his first sort of year in office. Eventually, it's moved to this cemetery. It was originally on city property, but then it's stolen and its theft only sparks more controversy. Will the Friends of Forest replace it? Can they replace it? By the time that I meet them in 2015, they were fresh off a a win in federal court that was granting them permission to replace the statue. And so part of the reason that they're there that day, in addition, you know, to wanting to sort of bite their thumb at the uh, at the 50th anniversary that was happening around them. In addition to that, they're there that day to sort of prepare the grounds for the rededication of this statue of forest. And, and that experience uh, raised all of these questions for me about who Nathan Bedford Forrest was, what it meant to put up a statue of him, what it meant to put up a statue of him in 2015. And so th- that was on my mind all through that spring of 2015. And I thought, okay, maybe there's something here, maybe an essay, something small that 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 gets at these questions about the importance of Selma and, and this sort of contested history uh, of the Civil War and, and the Civil Rights Movement. Um, but then, of course, that summer, two things happen that explode everything I was thinking about this story. The first is that they rededicate the statue. So the forest is back in Selma in late May of 2015. But then three weeks after that, Dylan Roof walks into the basement of Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, and murders nine parishioners of that church. And, and, and soon after he's arrested, it becomes clear that in addition to his manifesto being circulated, he had also gone on this really strange, it's weird to call it this, but almost like a sightseeing tour of South Carolina, visiting different sites that are important to the slave trade, to the Confederacy plantations, uh, cemeteries of enslaved people, uh, almost to kind of steal himself for this act of American terrorism that he was about to commit. And and so in the wake of, of, of the Charleston Nine murders, this referendum on Confederate symbolism breaks out across the country. And, and as soon as that happens, I realized it, it, it was impossible for me to separate what happened in South Carolina with this ex- these experiences that I had with the Friends of Forest. And so as these protest movements break out uh, about Confederate symbolism and and monuments in particular, I decided that I was going to follow some of those campaigns aimed specifically at monuments of Nathan Bedford Forrest. Um, Given his biography as a slave trader, as a Grand Wizard of the Klan, his life and the meaning of his life as it's remembered now seemed to be a really um, revealing way of getting at both the way that that this country's past haunts us and 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 how it it shapes our present. So so yeah, I so so the book what or what's become this book is a product of all of that reporting following these different protest movements to try and get these monuments of forest down. 
Wow. Um, let me let me scan real quick because um, I want to go back a little bit before we kind of go forward. Um, prior to that day, what was the extent of your knowledge of Nathan Bedford Forrest? And did you come across him just in terms of your research uh, through your educational path and or through your journalism um, work in journalism? I, I mean, it was it was sort of crickets. You know, when I'm when I'm in that cemetery that day in 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 2015, they say, "Oh, this statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest we've been fighting about." I just give them this sort of blank look. You know, my own, really my only association with Forrest was Forrest Gump. You know, and that sort of that that scene in the movie that's played as kind of a joke. Um, that you know, Forrest Gump says he gets his name from the guy who used to dress up in bed sheets, and Mama says sometimes people do stupid things. Um, you know that that was that was it. It was just this sort of punchline from the movie that they'd play in history class in high school when you had a substitute teacher. You know, I just had I I didn't know anything about who he was or or why it mattered that that someone would want to honor him then or now. Um, and and I, I think that has a lot to do with the the sort of baggage that I was carrying as a, a white northerner and baggage that I didn't even really know I was carrying. You know, I think and, and I know this sounds naive um, because it is naive. Um, but but one of the things that I really had to grapple with as I, I started to work on this project was confronting just how much. I took for granted about how race operates in this country um, and has operated in this country for for centuries. You know, I, I think a lot of the received wisdom about uh, that that I sort of inherited growing up in, in in Pennsylvania was like, you know, the Civil War. We're good. We're you know, we were we're on the right side of that. This is not a question for us. Insofar as race is still an issue in this country, it's a problem of people's hearts and minds, and it's mostly a problem that exists down there in the South. You know, the, all of this inclination to to innocence, to amnesia, um, that that was just sort of the water I was swimming in as I was growing up, and it really did. It it took moving to Alabama. Where where things sort of they're a little bit closer to the surface. Issues of race are a little bit closer to the surface. I mean, they define. I've, I've, I've had to grapple with the fact that, of course, it 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 has defined my life for the entirety of it. Even when I was living in the north, it just sort of it it lives a little bit closer to the surface in the south. So I was able to see it a little bit more clearly. The contrast is just is just boosted. Um, but 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 of course it was it was shaping my life. Uh, it 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 shapes this country, as as Malcolm X famously said. You know the um, everything everything south of Canada might as well be might as well be the south. Um, but but it wasn't until Forrest came on my radar and I started researching him and I started trying to grapple with the the legacy of slavery and the legacy of of the Confederacy that I came to see a much a much broader national lasting injury at stake and, and and one that I was that I was implicated in as well but the more that I came to learn about Forrest was th the more that I really did come to learn about myself very little of it was flattering <laughs> stuff that I learned about myself you know but it was it was it was very necessary stuff and I know and I keep saying this and I know it sounds naive um, but I think in in some ways what I'm trying to do with this book is to document a journey of, of like coming into a consciousness about about how whiteness works um, in a way that's not defensive and and ideally in a way that's not just in a way that's not about guilt but just about like responsibility right like I have inherited this this history in in this responsibility like if I'm going to inherit my parents house then I'm going to inherit the way that my parents were able to buy that house right and of course that has everything to do that has everything to do with race yeah, it's really interesting. And I, I thought that was uh, really profound and it stood out to me. And one of the questions that I ask all of my podcast guests is, when is the first time you became aware of race? Mm -hmm. And so interestingly enough, as I was reading your book, you know, you talked about this kind of awakening or consciousness shift uh, through this experience in Selma. But then you take it back and reflect on an experience you had as a very young person in kindergarten. And so so would you mind sharing that? Because that's something you didn't reflect upon until 
Thelma, right? In 2015. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just think it's really powerful to share that story and how you kind of uh, were able to reframe that experience and how it shaped your life. Yeah, I mean, it was it was it was amazing. Shout out to Mrs. Goodman, my my kindergarten teacher. So so most of my I, I sort of grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which is really rural, you know, the sort of Amish country. Um, but until I was eight, my family lived in Philadelphia and and so as a five, six, seven-year-old, I was I was attending Philadelphia public schools, which, you know, given the sort of de facto segregation of, of American cities, it meant that I was the only white kid in my class. And it's a, a sort of tradition, or it was then, I don't know if they still do it, I'd be curious to know, Houston Elementary School kindergarten class every year does the Rosa Parks play. And when you're the token white kid, your role is the arresting officer. Uh, it, that was true for my brother, who was a year ahead of me, also the only white kid in his kindergarten class. And, and so it was true for me. So, you know, in April of 1994 or whatever it was, I marched onto the stage and arrested Rosa Parks and took her off the bus. Um, and I think I just think that that's a really, I mean, it, the the lesson of that casting decision that role was was lost on me at the time i was five years old but but as you say like it wasn't really until i started to really grapple with the the unresolved tensions of the civil war and and the civil rights movement that i really came to understand what was meaningful about that role because i think i mean i'm generalizing here but but broadly speaking i think that the narrative at least for a lot of white people in america the narrative of the civil rights movement is okay there was segregation and segregation was bad but then a, a couple of brave people you, brave people stood up and marched or you know integrated schools or lunch counters uh and and then we solved it you know it's this sort of like greatest hits three-day carnival uh, in february uh and 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 we solved this issue of race and because these brave people you know did what they did and and we can we can remember them as as heroes but but the thornier questions that that might be raised as we remember the civil rights movement would be okay well like who are the antagonists here Who's benefiting from these systems? What specifically changed after the mid-1960s? What replaced it? What happened to the hearts and minds? Yes, we got some, we, there was important legislation passed, but has also been undermined in recent years. And, and what about the hearts and minds of, 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 of these people, North and South, who supported this racial hierarchy? Uh, you, did we solve it? who and who's responsible here or who is who 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 are the antagonists and what happened to them that all of that is is you avert your eyes from all of that and so the sort of genius of of this casting decision was to say you're also in you white boy are also inheriting a legacy you're also inheriting a history you're also inheriting a set of uh, your life will continue to move along these lines of, of wealth, of resources, of an assumption of innocence uh, that is not afforded to, to all Americans, um, and that that has everything to do with your race. And you might do well to think about that fact. Mm -hmm. um, and, and like I said, you know, that, that lesson was really lost on me for, for a long time, but it wasn't until uh, I had to start asking myself, questions about like, okay, what is, what is the legacy of slavery? What is the legacy of the civil war? What is the legacy of the civil rights movement? What, what is still, what are the tensions that are still with us that I came to see like, oh, okay, I'm on the hook here too. Mm -hmm. Because I think it could have been really easy, especially to come at it from the angle of the journalist to say, all right, if I'm going to cover these battles about Confederate monuments um, or report on the civil rights movement, for that matter, or the, the legacy of the civil rights movement, it would be really easy to, to, to claim this kind of journalistic objectivity and say, this isn't about me. I, I don't have a perspective on this. I don't have a stake in this. Uh, I can sort of float above it and just report on what's happening to other people. But of course, that conforms to this bad collective memory that we have about how this history works. And, and so 
what I had to realize was that basically if I was going to tell the story of Nathan Bedford Forrest, that I was going to have to rethink the story that I told about myself. So the book becomes this kind of weird, like hybrid thing where it's like a little bit of journalism. It's it's part journalism, it's part history, but it's also part personal reflection and trying to, to understand the stake that I have in this. And again, it's not flattering. It's, it, it's not, it's, uh, it's, it's not, it's, it's discomforting, but I think it's important to, you know, for, 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 for white folks to talk about that stuff and how it shapes their life, because the onus is, has largely been on people of color to talk mm-hmm. about it. Right. It's, it's, it's not a problem for us. It's not a problem for white people. It's not a problem for me. It's, it's, it's a problem for them. And and that and I, I wanted to sort of intervene in that and 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 think through more in a more self-reflexive way about that. Which I think is really powerful and important. And I would love to read a passage from your book. You said, when I first started writing about Forrest, and it's along these lines, I conceived of myself as an outside observer. I would bear witness, document, report on the referendums in Forrest taking place in these four cities, but I came to see a larger proxy war in the offing, one that has engulfed the entire nation and implicated me as well. And I think you described that. What was that experience like? Because not everyone gets to have this kind of reckoning. I know as a nation we're having a reckoning, but to be able to look internally. On another kind of note, I think it's interesting the way you described your experience in the Rosa Parks play, because in my experience, whether it be doing anti-racism workshops or interviewing um, guests for my podcast, when I when I ask that question about the self-awareness around race, oftentimes when I'm speaking to somebody who is white, that awareness is much later in life. And for people of color, it's very early, usually traumatic experience. And so, you know, like you said, the onus then becomes on the on the minds, the hearts, the the backs of black people and people of color. And I just find it interesting that reflection, because I would love for you to share what that journey has been like, because people come to me and ask me, I don't know where to start and Mm -hmm. I'm not quite sure. And I think that self-reflection is one of the first places. Yeah, I mean, I think the big the the big issue was working through this impulse that I felt in myself, even if I wasn't conscious of it, even if I wasn't articulating it in quite these terms, I still did have a kind of inclination towards these ideas of American exceptionalism, basically, that we're the greatest country in the world, we're this this democracy, we have freedom, opportunity, um, because all you know this stuff gets imbued in us in these in these very subtle but also kind of pernicious ways right the, from a very early age from a very early age right this is standing to recite the pledge these are these flyovers at football games the the national anthem the way that history is taught in schools i mean i mean all of it the the way that we justify the wars that we embark on i mean all of it the 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 gist of all of that is like we're great and you as a, a sort of birthright are entitled to a happy history. And I think that that on a, on a sort of psychological level, that makes sense, right? Like we do want to feel like we can look back to the past and find lessons from it. That's that's what we're taught about the whole point of history, right? Is to is to look back and, and be in, in, informed by it. But then but in America, it's also to look back and, and be feel a, this justification, a sort of self-righteousness about how great everything is. Um, You combined that sense of American exceptionalism with the fact that no one wants to talk about this idea of whiteness or where it came from or, or what it's supposed to mean, you know, like all of that goes, goes unremarked upon. And it's just, it's just a given you're, you're white. That's what I heard. That's the norm. Right. Um, Don't, don't, don't think about it. It's just, you look at a magazine who who are the people in the ads are white people you know i mean it's just all of it is it it, it any any one moment feels unremarkable but it, as it accrues over a lifetime it it shapes the way you think about who you are and what you need to question and what you don't need to question 
I, I, I think it was really important then to, to come at this through the experience of being in Selma and, and, and thinking about the meaning of the voting rights movement, which is to say, you think that we've been a democracy for, one might think we've been a democracy for centuries, but we really weren't, not a, not a full democracy, not a, not, a, not a multiracial democracy, you know? Um, and so you start to study the voting rights campaign in Selma and, and you see that basically since ex-Confederates returned to power in Alabama after Reconstruction had been undermined, they made it nearly impossible for Black people in Alabama to vote. Mm-hmm. And it, less than 2% of eligible voters, eligible Black voters, were on the voting rolls for decades for the first half of the 20th century. Is that a democracy? Or is that a racial, is that, is that a racial hierarchy? Is that the caste system? Um, and, and why is that? Who, who stands to benefit from that? And who is punished by that? Who, is, who, who enjoys the, the, the trappings of full citizenship and who doesn't? You know, and, and, and then when you try to say, okay, well, black folks should be able to vote, you know, who gets murdered, who gets mortgages foreclosed upon, who gets their cars or their homes set on fire. I mean, it's just like cl- very clearly there's an incentive here for not letting people who would be eligible voters to be fully vested citizens of this country. Um, and, and, and so when you come at it from that angle, you, can't, you, you start to see, okay, I didn't grow up in Selma, but I'm starting to see how white Americans are the beneficiaries of this racial hierarchy, um, whether that's who get who gets to go to good schools, who gets to buy good houses, who's eligible for loans. I mean, it's just, you start to see that it's, it, they're, they're policy questions, they're, they're structural questions. And, and as you look, as you try and account for the gap between emancipation in the 1860s and say a 10 to one racial wealth gap in this country, presently, what accounts for that? Well, it's all these policy questions, right? Who's eligible for the Homestead Act? Who's eligible to register to vote? Who's eligible for the Social Security Act, for the GI Bill, to get FHA loans, to go to, um, you know, well, fully funded public schools? Why do you think that we perpetuate these myths and lies so pervasively? across the nation, in schools, in history books, in our narrative, in our monuments, in our murals? Because it, I, I, I think partly it's because it might be otherwise. It could be otherwise. And it has, it, it, like there is the potential for equity, right? I mean, if, if, we, if we do have this full investment, if we do really have a multiracial democracy and, and this government, if the state works for everyone, the way that it has historically worked for white people, we we might have we might be a more equitable society. We could be a more equitable society. But there is a vested interest in the people who have already benefited from that and have hoarded these resources and these opportunities and this wealth and this land to say, hmm, we're not we're not giving that up. We're not going to give because I'm. I got to get mine and I got to get for my kids. We can't change these laws because we, and, and, and what's convenient about it, more than convenient, strategic about it, is that we, white Americans have recourse to this plausible deniability that like, no, 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 this is a democracy. This is, if, 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 you, if you're not rich, it's because you're lazy. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, and not thinking we, we don't we don't talk about wh- whiteness. We don't see whiteness. We don't call it out because <laughs> it is the mechanism by which we have hoarded all of this. And so if we do start talking about it, there is a real risk of the sorts of like redistributions of, of, of wealth, of power, of opportunities that that desperately need to happen if we're going to be any sort of functioning, equitable society. And so these referendums on our history become super contested, right? The 1619 Project from the New York Times becomes this massive target of conservatives, of, 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 of white sort of neocons to say like, no, 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 this is ahistorical, this is nonsense, this is rubbish, they'd want you to hate America, they're all communists. The, outlawed the, in schools. Right, ex- outlawed in schools, oh my God, exactly. Yeah. Right, what's the incentive for that? Like if, <laughs> I mean, we know, we, you can look at the logs, you can see how 
cataclysmic this the 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 slave system was and you could see how massively massively profitable it was what what's to be gained by trying to keep that a secret by not talking about that it it, it and it is this defense against any sort of progressive policies to try and make this country more equitable. So, so yeah, I mean, I think, I think everything is at stake and, and I think that's why it's important too. Cause I think sometimes there's a, there can be a critique of like, Oh, why are you thinking about symbols? You know, these are, these are sort of frivolous things. It's important to think about the, you know, the structures, the policies, the more sort of inside baseball of the, of, of these questions. And, and I, and, and point taken, that stuff is absolutely crucial, but I think what we've seen in the last couple of years is more and more people thinking, paying attention to these symbols, whether they're statues, whether they're names of schools, um, you know, the, the list goes on and on. But what, what we've seen in the last couple of years is a growing number of people attuned to them and they're able to know they can lay out for you what that wrong is and, and, and that it's not just a historic wrong. It's a, it's a wrong that continues to shape our lives in the present. And so, you know, you talked about this summer, this past summer, immediately upon the death of George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd, people congregate in cities across the country at sites of these symbols of slave traders, of colonialism. I mean, we, this, this, this intervention, this referendum on our history is, is working and, and is drawing more and more people into this this really necessary state of of looking at our past and acknowledging the harm in our past and tracing it into the harms and the injuries of our present. Um, and and so in that way, I think these these debates about symbols um, has have have really been important. Absolutely. You have me thinking about so, so much. I want to make sure that I capture um just kind of your journey with the book. There's, you know, I first of all, I should have said this at the very beginning, but like, you're just such an extraordinary writer. <laughs> I'm like oh, so like gripped. Um, so that's why I've pulled another passage from your book, which is we mostly think about monuments in terms of their surface, who they represent and what they reflect. They are after all meant to honor and immortalize the person they depict often by literally putting them on a pedestal. But the architect Aldo Rossi suggests that a city's monuments also serve as containers for the collective memory of that place. You know, you said sometimes people might say, well, why are you talking about monuments? But they literally shape the narrative of who we were, who we are, not only um, in the symbolism of who that who is being depicted, but also I've heard you speak about who erected them. What was the support system behind that? And then if you're walking around and seeing these images all of the time, what does that say about us? Mm -hmm. So what can we learn from um, these statues? Because there are how many statues? Um, <laughs> there are 31 markers of forest in Tennessee, uh, which is more than, so there are three presidents from the state of Tennessee. There are more markers of forest than there are to those three presidents combined in that state. So it it, it goes to show sort of who's 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 top of mind um, for at least some percentage of of, of Tennesseans over the years. Um, yeah, I mean, tell us about our collective amnesia, <laughs> memory amnesia, and also who we are. Yeah, I think it tells us a lot because it's you're always having to, when you want to do that kind of great men of history approach, you're always making decisions about who's remembered and thus who is forgotten. And so in choosing to remember Nathan Bedford Forrest and putting him on a pedestal, there's that, that context is always in the context of honoring him. And I don't think it can be extracted from it because I think one of the one of the things on the table now that I, I think some folks want to want to pursue in this question of what to do with all these monuments that we have is like, oh, well, can't we add a plaque? Can we can we say like, OK, yes, we put this statue up and we said good things about him. But now we'll put this other plaque up and we'll say not so good things about him. And that just that's just sort of insufficient to me, I think, because you can't it, it part of the part of the point, the 
the big point of the monument is to immortalize this person, to literally put them on a pedestal. And so you can't then say like, oh yeah, we put him on a pedestal, but we also put this plaque up next to him. And this became a particularly acute for me as I was reporting this book. One of the one of the monuments that I cover in the book is a, a building on campus at Middle Tennessee State University, uh, which is in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And they, over the years, have had a a ton of Confederate symbolism on campus, and one and and nearly it, almost immediately upon integrating that school, black students were like, "Whoa, whoa, 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 no, we we got to get this down," and led these protest campaigns to to try to to try and remove it and to ha- ask the school to be in ca- accountable to the full context of what it meant to honor the Confederacy a hundred years after the war. Um, but, fifth, you know, after 50 years of that, of, you know, students of color protesting, there were still symbols of the Confederacy on campus, including this building, uh, Forest Hall, named after Nathan Bedford Forrest. And, and, and so in the wake of the Charleston Nine murders, students on campus led this protest movement to try and get that forest name off of this building. And in response, the university said, okay, we'll start a task force, which, you know, (laughs) anytime a university starts a task force, you know, it's in bad faith. They're just slow walking it. They're trying to cover their asses. Um, But, but they, they start this task force and the task force says, okay, we'll put three options on the table, change the name, keep the name, or keep the name with added context. And I have to admit, early on, I, I was I was intrigued by that because you know, I, like I said, I was coming to this with with a certain amount of naivete. And I thought, and as I was reading this history, as I was reading, you know, the documents of secession, the you know everything that was at stake, that the how important financially, how and how devastating the this system of slavery was and how committed the Confederacy was to that system of slavery, I thought, oh, well, maybe added context might be interesting. What if you really did lay out like, okay, these were explicitly the things that someone like Nathan Bedford Forrest was fighting for. Um, And these are all of the things you can lay out the sort of grievance, you know, the, the, the critiques against him. Could that be powerful to put that on a plaque? I, I was intrigued by that possibility, the sort of transparency, the truth telling that like we were talking about earlier to sort of name the kind of white supremacy that was operating there. But a lot of the students, when I suggested that to, to student protesters, uh, uh, activists on campus, they just cut their eyes at me and, and said, like, we, I don't need that plaque. I don't need this. Con- I know exactly what that statue means. I know exactly what that name means. I don't need a plaque to explain it to me. It's about this, this, the, the dehumanizing work of having this building that I have to walk past every morning n- named to honor a man who didn't think that they were human, who, who would have pro- gladly profited from the trafficking of, of, of their bodies, of their labor. Um, and and I think that that would I you know uh, there's so much I needed to hear as I was reporting this book, but I really needed to hear that and that would, I mean because it's such an it's a it's a great point you know there's there's this great book by Henry Louis Gates called Stony the Road that came out a couple of years ago, but he's doc in in this book he documents all of these images that are happening after the Civil War and after Reconstruction. That are that are being produced in American culture that are dehumanizing caricatures of Black Americans. You know the sort of Sambo caricatures, or the you know the ways that 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 Black people are depicted in Gone with the Wind or, or Birth of a Nation. And and his argument there is to say that there is this anti-Black in like the images that we're steeped in, inundated, and yeah, it all of it meant to sort of fuse this like anti-blackness into our the nerve endings of white Americans. Um, and, and I think the other side of that coin are these Confederate monuments to say, here are our heroes, we'll put them on the horses and they can regally look out across these cities. Meanwhile, we're, we'll just sort of flood newspapers, TV shows, movies, every, you know, all the media of America with these, these anti-black images and the, the, the dehumanizing effect of that the indignity of that is is replicated in these in these honor so normalized yes exactly you take it for granted yeah you you just don't even like i live in new york city and when i first moved here i'm like columbus circle 
Columbus Circle has a statue of Columbus, like that towers to the sky. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's debate around that. But, you know, you just everywhere you go um, and across the nation. So it just that's interesting. I'm curious, did that conversation in particular shift or change your kind of trajectory of thinking around monuments and their place, whether they should remain up, whether they should come down? Definitely. Definitely. Because I was, I mean, because that was sort of the way I was approaching the book at first too, which is to say like, oh, if only you knew. I didn't know, right? And 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 <laughs> as with anything, you, you have your own point of view to that, that is guiding you, right? You have your perspective on things. And so the personal journey that I was on was like, whoa, okay. This was the this system of slavery and the cause of the Confederacy was so drastically important and so financially powerful for Southerners and for Northerners that everyone had a stake in, so many people had a stake in this and so many had people had a, a stake in perpetuating it and 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 making you know as the frontier moves west making those states as they're added to the union slave states too just seeing trying to come into terms with just how cataclysmic it was but also how catalytic it was how how important it was for the building of this nation and all all of these instruments of american capitalism get get drawn up to extract as much profit as possible from the labor of enslaved people. Um, so as I was digging into that, I, I was thinking like, oh, maybe you thought this was bad. It's even worse than you think. And so what if you just laid it out? That could be powerful, right? You lay it out and, and, and people will see and they'll, they'll come to think, oh, wow, well, that's wrong in ways I didn't think were wrong. Okay, let's change the name of this building or let's take down the statue. But of course, it doesn't work like that, right? Like a, a bunch of the the Confederate activists that I talk to know that history too, and they think, well, yeah, so what? Like, history, slavery was legal, big deal. Like, my granddaddy rode with Forrest. Let's keep the statue up. You know, it's like, oh, okay, this is this runs deeper. This is about prerogative. This is about uh, a sense of of whose country this is. Entitlement, reinforcement. I mean, it's such a, yeah, one of my questions is about like our psyche Mm -hmm. and what it does to our psyche. You know, I I worked for the National Park Service for many years and I found myself working and, you know, I dove into like historic buildings and architecture and how buildings, the significance and symbolism that is embedded in different mm-hmm. buildings and just the thought and um, highly calculated <laughs> um, symbolism and what it's supposed to embody and kind of portray about us as a nation or us as a building. I mean, for example, I worked in a, what's called the US Custom House in New York City. Mm. And every element of the architecture was to project an image, even the direction in which the door faced. Every single detail. And I just think about that as a microcosm of these statues that Mm. permeate our country. And I, you know, Confederate generals, but also thinking about uh, Mount Rushmore, in addition to the mountain being like completely desecrated and then taking a natural sacred land and replacing it with figures who represent white superiority and white supremacy. It's just amazing to think about what that does to one psyche. Right. And in in this in this really like pernicious and intentional way, right? Like there's I it it feels on the nose this the the story of how Rushmore came to be. But of course that 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 is reflecting the the ideology and the framework and the entitlement that that is meant to be projected on there. Right. So when you tell the story of how these things came to be, you're you're telling the story of attitudes. You're telling the story of a worldview, of a philosophy that that is guiding it. And that that tells us about how how we come to that you can then connect to how we have the inequities that we have right now right i mean i think you you mentioned architecture too i mean there's so many stuff that there's so much stuff that got cut from the book that i wish that could have been in but part of it was thinking about southern architecture and why that in the south there is this obsession with classical architecture with this these old forms of the, the Greek revival architecture. And, and to your point, like it is so intentional. Part of it was 
<laughs> in the 1700s and 1800s, the, the sort of Southern aristocracy was intentionally looking at the ancient Greeks because they had a slave society and they had these ideas of, of the station of a slave being a sort of God-given station that some people might occupy in life. And so there's this way in which like the columns and the porch and the staircases of these plantation homes that have then become like the architecture of all the universities of the South too, again, no coincidence, it's architecturally an argument for a slave society. And so it, I mean, it is, it, it is not hyperbole to say that it's like, it is in the bones of this country. It's in the bones of our buildings. It's in the bones of our architecture and, and monuments and mountain faces of the mountains that we've carved these faces of men into. I mean, it, it is all about a sense that like literally this land and what we do, how we shape this land is for some of us to the exclusion of other people. And, and of course, we, we you can't say that, right? So you have to pretend it's about other things, but it's there, you know, the, the, and, and it's it, more and more people are seeing it. And, and so there's more and more gaslighting about us not seeing it, um, but, but yeah. it's there. You're, when you describe it being in the bones, you have me thinking about Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast. Um, just the way that she describes the caste system, kind of using it being in the bones um, as the foundation for our country is, is really powerful. Um, I'd like to know from your point of view, where's the conversation about monuments, memory and white supremacy, especially in light of summer of 2020 with the murders of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor and George Floyd? What was going through your mind at that time in relation to the work that you had spent you, the hard work that you had been doing and just where is the conversation now from your point of view? I, I think it's important to acknowledge the legwork and the commitment of grassroots activists who have been at this for years, for decades, for centuries. Um, but, I, but I think as it pertains at least to the question of, of these monuments, the the folks who have been who have spent the last six years trying to connect these symbols to the the systems of inequity that they represent, um, I, I think so many people took inspiration from what Bree Newsom did when she scaled the flagpole of the South Carolina Capitol to remove the the Confederate flag that flew there, um, and 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 so I think when when the summer came around and 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 the murders of Breonna Taylor of Ahmaud Arbery of of George Floyd happen, people know exactly where they can go to express their grief, their rage, um, and and often as we've seen this summer, they 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 are these statues, whether they're Confederates, the founding fathers who were slaveholders, Columbus, this is in the, the history of colonialism implicated there. I, I, it is a testament to the work of these grassroots organizers who have, who have been saying, look, it's all around you. It is, it is everywhere you look and, and here, and it's, and it's wrong. And here are the specific reasons that it's wrong. And here are the ways you can trace those wrongs into your life. And so we've had this kind of summer of, 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 of toppled monuments. And, and, and because of this broader referendum that we've been having, about our history and the meaning of our history in 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 the present. You know, there's it's funny. There's this book, a book of photography from like the 1970s, I think. It's by this photographer Lee Friedlander. It's called The American Monument. And the sort of visual joke of the book is that it's called The American Monument, but the monuments and all these pictures are out of focus and in the background. And, and the point being that, you know, we have all this public history, but at least some people have, have gone kind of blind to it, that we just take it for granted that they're there. But what we've seen over the last five, six, seven years is uh, these, these statues, these symbols sort of being drawn into focus and, and being at the forefront of our minds that, because they, they're the, the, the representation of this history that continues to haunt us that we haven't dealt with. Um, you know, I, I, I think in some ways, so I've been thinking about the Confederate monuments specifically, and I think in some ways the question of the Civil War was 
can a settler slave society transform itself into a multiracial democracy? I think that was really the question of the Civil War and the aftermath of the Civil War. And that is really still the central question of this country now, given the voter suppression, given the Stop the Steal campaign, given the white nationalist insurrection in the Capitol. Like this is the, you know, people in Detroit, in Atlanta, in Philadelphia, these, these, you know, black cities, having people say the oh, votes shouldn't count there. Like that th this is it, it, so immediately the central question of this country and of the fate of, of the, you know, insofar as this is a democracy, the fate of the of, of this democracy really hangs in the balance now. And and I think we're we're seeing it. So when I look at this summer and when I look at when I look what's happening in the, you know, in the in the in the months since, I mean, it, it's it's all at the surface now. It's been excavated, and it's all it's all here. This collective memory um, is 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 at the surface, and and the questions are stark, and they are on the table. And that's that means that we're in this moment of of incredible opportunity, and also you know terrifying risk, and it, which is in some ways where we've always been. It's just that we're seeing it now. Um, or, or more of us are more of us are more, more people like me are seeing it now. Um, and, and, and I think that that's what you, you asked about my journey. And I think that's part of the, that's what's been strange about it is that like the stuff that I'm thinking about is really, I think it's really important, but it's also kind of remedial. Like, I, I just love the way you describe that because your journey is so important to the book, but it's also so important to this kind of self-reflection on an individual level, but collectively so as well. Um, so if we are through uh, the summer of 2020, like there's a, a crack in the consciousness, mm -hmm. how can we take advantage of that? Like, how can we bring your experience and your uh, awakening, so to speak, like to the mainstream? What do you think are some ways in which we can heighten the conversation? To what you've learned and uh, the evolution that you've experienced in, in thought as you kind of, as I'm describing your journey. Yeah, I think what's important about coming to this collective understanding about the injuries of the lasting injuries of slavery and of white supremacy and the forms of white supremacy that long outlasted the system of slavery, um, that that is a historic injury that is still with us. And so once, if you can, if you can get to the point, if you can get enough people to the point where they can acknowledge that historic wrong, I think ideally you're closer to building the kinds of consensus for policy in the present. Like if you can say like the inequities, the, the, the issues that are facing this country, the inequities that we have in this country now didn't just come out of nowhere. There is a historic context for them. They're, they come essentially because of like affirmative action for white people, which has been lo the, the long standing project of, of so much policy of this country. And so if you can, if you can get people to see like, okay, this, this, this stuff in the past is wrong, then you're closer to building the consensus for active interventions in the present. Canceling student debt, we know would markedly improve the lives specifically of black women who who carry so much student debt like if we can if we can get that off the table that's a racial justice issue the raising the minimum wage all of these uh, reparations changing the way that we we fund schools actively incent you know making home ownership a, a a reality for more and more americans all of these things if you can if you can bring in a consciousness of race and how some people black people people of color have been excluded from it to the benefit of white people historically and that we can have a more race conscious set of policies it it will actually help all of us it, it will it will create equity it will it will create it will help to to make this fear feeling and fear of scarcity less less present and thus less incentive to to want to support white supremacist policies so i think as more and more people are coming to see the historic injury mm -hmm. we're closer to getting a kind of consensus for for progressive policies in the 
in the present that, that would be equipped to try and address them. So I think that's the project, right? Is that it's like, have one foot in the past, have one foot in the present and, and not be defensive about it, not feel entitled about what this history should say about who I am or, or where I came from. Like, it's okay to, it is okay to have an unflattering history. There's nothing that says you're entitled to a glowing good past. You might inherit some bad stuff. And when you do, just take accountability for it. Yeah, exactly. The knowledge alone is empowering. Exactly. It takes me back to the beginning, which uh, I feel like you've done. A, you have <laughs> given me such a gift of expanding the uh, historical narrative, which is so important because I'm a huge proponent of knowing the past to know the present. You know, knowing knowing your roots is to know yourself. Mm -hmm. So I just feel incredibly grateful for this opportunity. I mean, I've learned a whole lot. I'm inspired to think about, um, you know, many of the things that we've talked about. I know my listeners will just love this conversation. I have one signature question, which mm -hmm. I ask all of my guests, and it may or may not be like, how is that related? Trust me, it is. I but love it. Um, <laughs> Connor, what are the roots of your spirit? Mm. I've been thinking a lot about my grandma recently who um, who had been orphaned for some time and was sort of raised raised by by other members of her family and was in a marriage that was I think pretty unhappy. you know there's stories of her like going to the bathroom to cry on Christmas day um, and and her grandfather or my grandfather, her husband, who sort of loomed very large in this family and in in the family lore, um, who did all of this genealogy work and was very invested in this kind of like the idealized vision of the past and and wanted to sort of connect it to it. My mom said it, he felt like he was born to the wrong century. Um, but I've been thinking about about his wife, my grandma, who would who sort of bore a lot of the burden of that, right? I mean, it's 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 a strange thing to be married to someone who doesn't want to be in the present with you, right? Um, and and she would always on elections, she would always um, go down to the polling place and help count the votes, and she would never tell anyone who she voted for, um, even while she was sort of tallying up the votes of this of this town in Massachusetts where they lived, and 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 just the burden. But also the like the sort of quiet enduring of 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 her life and the the the, the dignity that she sought to maintain in that. I've been thinking a lot. Of, I, I think about it anytime there's election. I I think about her because I think about her counting the votes and and the importance of the vote. But also like maybe not voting for the person that her husband wanted her to vote for, and so she had to keep it a secret. And her like her walk home from the voting from the voting booth a lot, and just how clearly how important that that was for her and how invested she was in it and 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 given all the context of the last election but also the efforts that we're seeing now in the wake of that election to try and disenfranchise more and more voters i'm just thinking i'm just thinking a lot about her as this granted admittedly like a pretty small cog but a but a, but an important cog nonetheless in the gears of american democracy and and just how we all have a stake, how we all can have a stake in maintain in, in building a system that is accurately reflects and, and represents the people of this country. Like every day it feels like our democracy is at stake. And so uh, the, my person, the, the way that I think about my, my connection to that and the personal connections to that, I think always come back to my grandma. So yeah, I'm thinking about Grammy Town. I think in a lot, she's really the sort of matriarch of at least my of my mom's side of the family. So I think those are those are roots of the spirit that are that are important and and don't need to be flattering. Don't need to be these sort of grand sweeping tales, but just the sort of like daily work of the citizen. You know, the responsibilities of citizenship that come with it. I think she felt very acutely, um, and that I'm trying to to think about a lot lately too. That's absolutely beautiful. Thank you very much for sharing. And thank you so much for your time and your wisdom and your experience. So appreciate you. And um, thank you. Oh, thank you. It's really great to talk with you. I, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for joining us today. 
As always, we'd appreciate if you head over to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. Recommend this podcast to family and friends. Follow up with us on social media at Roots of the Spirit on all platforms. Visit our website and join our email list at rootsofthespirit.com. Also, you'll find links to the resources discussed in the episode in our show notes. Roots of the Spirit is hosted and directed by me, Spirit Tafik. Production assistance is provided by Karen Stewart of Power of Pod. Until next time.